It's time to talk sports. It's Hacksaw's Headlines, a panorama of the world of sports. Stories, comments, and opinions. Now, here's iconic sports talk show host Lee Hacksaw Hamilton and co-host John Riley. Who wants to talk sports on a Monday? We do. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Lee Hacksaw Hamilton, along with my co-host, John Riley. We welcome you to Monday bonus coverage of our podcast, Hacksaw's Headlines. We have a ton of topics on the table. We're going in a little bit of a different direction. But, John, before we start coming off the Great Sports Weekend, tell people about Fans Forum. Tell people about what we're doing, how to subscribe, so they'll get all the alerts to what we're doing with our podcast. Which is almost going every day of the week now. Yeah, almost every day of the week is right. So, uh, yeah, you can get involved in the fans forum segment. Just, uh, you know, get involved on the live chat in the live stream on either Facebook or YouTube. You can drop your take, drop your question or comment for Hacksaw. We'll get you involved in the fans forum segment at the conclusion of Hacksaw's headlines. And be sure to subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. And I remind you also when you watch, if you like what you see, Thumbs up, because that helps us a great deal. Also, if you like sports, I'll invite you to check my website. It's all written commentary every night of the week. It's there posted in the evening. Be there first thing in the morning. If you like sports, go to LeeHacksawHamilton.com daily. John, a lot of topics on the table. I was sitting on the weekend and thinking, okay, let's look at what's on TV Because there is no NFL. Obviously, there's few and far between baseball games. So I started thumbing through my mind a lot of the TV guide. And I said, you know what? There's a lot of diverse stuff on TV today. Let's just take a day and channel flip, see what we come up with. And use some of that as a jumping off point for Hacksaw's Headlines and our bonus podcast. I came up with a lot of really different things. Yeah, yeah, you did, Lee. And when you share with me the headlines for today, I mean, I was like, all right, hey, we're going to go in a little bit of a different direction. We're going to cover a lot of sports that we don't normally cover, but I think we're going to give it some due attention. We will hit everybody's hot button because we cover everything across the table. But let's get started with pro golf. I will tell you, I watch the Bay Hill Classic, and I watch the Grand Slam events nonstop. And then I I cherry pick. I'll watch some of the other tournaments in brief snippets. I watched all of Sunday at Bay Hill, the Arnold Palmer Invitational. And that Bay Hill course buried those golfers. And I sat there, and I watched each of these guys self-destruct. And how their body language changed from tee to green, fairway, in the water, off the trees, in the rough. It it was amazing television to watch the Bay Hill Classic. Do you know on the 16th hole, at one point on the 16th hole on the final day, we had five guys tied for first place at 8-under, three more guys a stroke back at 7-under. Wow. Going to the final three holes of the tournament, it was pretty doggone good. Um the the faces on these golfers as they miss shots, as they put balls where they should never put them, you could just feel the pressure on all these guys at Bay Hill. Kurt Kitsuyama survived a triple bogey to come back and win the tournament. And he won it on the 18th with a 71-foot putt from the far edge of the wow. green <laughs> right to the lip of the cup. 
didn't fall in. It sat right on the lip of the cup, and then he tipped it in, and he wound up winning. But you talk about perseverance. He had three three putt holes in that tournament yesterday. That was terrible, terrible call. He couldn't put the ball in the hole, and yet he comes back to win it with a 71-footer. Absolutely stunning win. Some of the other names are just Rory McIlroy. It looked like he ate a bad tuna sandwich. The the <laughs> scowls on his face, he could not get the balls to drop. And he was in the lead. He was out of the lead. Guys were coming in and out in first place atop the leaderboard. And by the time he got to the 18th, he was just relieved that the suffering was over. Um, interesting guy, Jordan Spieth. For a couple days, he was at the top. Everybody was chasing him. And he had five straight birdie putts that did wow. not go in. <laughs> I mean, he missed them from three feet, five feet, 12 feet. He was so frustrated. He, he took his putter after the fifth hole in the roll that he didn't drop it in for a bird. He's shaking his putter like this. <laughs> and the worst one was was uh, Ty Hatton. Now, he's he's a journeyman's pro. Hatton just was angry. The whole final day, he was yelling at his clubs. He was yelling at the greens. He was yelling towards the the gallery. <laughs> you talk about just an emotional piece of wreckage. That was absolutely strangest thing I've seen. And despite being angry, he had a couple holes where he made shots. And then he proceeded to blow it up again and get angry again. I mean, the golf course... The the guys on, on CBS said that aside from the, the Grand Slam courses, Bay Hill is the toughest 18 holes of any of the tournaments around the country. And boy, if you just look at the victims yesterday <laughs> and what happened on Sunday, it was amazing. And in one other note, I thought to myself, what a great first six weeks the PGA Tour has had. I mean, you had Tiger's comeback, obviously, at, at Riviera. John Rahm winning three tournaments in five weeks was spectacular. The emergence of some of these young guys all of a sudden forging their way to the top of the leaderboard. And I thought to myself, yeah, the PGA is in pretty good shape. I wonder how those guys who defected to Saudi Arabia's LIV League think. You know, <laughs> nobody's watching their tournaments. Right. They're not on anybody's radar. Nobody's writing about them except for the controversy. And I thought, I wonder deep down within what Dustin Johnson thinks, what Phil Mickelson thinks, what Sergio Garcia thinks. I mean, it's 35 guys who left the PGA Tour to go abroad for the guaranteed money. And it's like they're playing in anonymity. They're not on anybody's golf radar. Now, granted, these guys will, will get the chance to play in the four Grand Slam events, uh, starting with the Masters. But fascinating to see what happened in the Arnold Palmer Invitational. Amazing to think about new guys developing and all these other names are just, just not here. Well, wasn't this Bay Hill um, event one of the PGA's sort of designated events where they really tried to get a lot more of the top golfers from around the world? Were they able to get that, and did any of the LIV guys come over for this, this no, game? No, LIV guys are not eligible. Mm-hmm. Uh, the LIV guys are only eligible to play in the four Grand Slams. Mm. That's it. Uh, they can't play next next week at the Players' Championships. Um, you know, the lawsuits continue. The bad blood continues. The crossfire of criticism continues. 
But just to sit there and watch all these golfers just melt down (laughs) on Sunday. And, I mean, the fact you had eight guys within one shot of each other, that's that's really, really good golf. So PGA, a lot of fun. And they're going to develop some new stars with to replace the guys who jump ship and left. That's all right, man. So yeah, I was also read a little bit about the article. They're talking about, you know, the world's number one golfer is John Rahm. But that's still like a PGA ranking. That's not really a world ranking, right? Exactly. But then again, all, most all the big names are playing here on the PGA Tour. Mm-hmm. So that's why it comes into play. Okay, so part of my day was taken up by golf. <laughs> if you're a golf fan, feel free to shoot us a question, make a comment. Are you watching the LIV? Do you care about the LIV? Can the PGA develop guys? Hey, join us on the fans forum uh, on our live stream broadcast. All right, let's go to the second topic on the table. Yeah, I mean, when you shared this with me, I I did a little quick look here. This was an incredible game that went down in, in England between these two teams with so much history and tradition behind it, but it was really embarrassing. The storyline in England, in the English Premier League, which is the elite league in the world, is all these angry coaches. These coaches are really upset. And Sunday morning started with one coach just ripping his team and the media and the fans. And then it ended with another coach ripping his club. And I'm talking about the coaches at Manchester United and the coaches at Liverpool. Uh, the the coach at, at Liverpool is Jurgen Klopp, very outspoken, has had some good years there with Liverpool, not having a good year this year. And he got up on Saturday and he said, it's time in England to stop the poison. <laughs> and he pointed at the fans, stop berating my players. We're doing as well as we can do, playing through injuries, position changes, transfer deals that didn't work out. And then he pointed to the media. These guys, the English media, the London media, the tabloids, I think there's seven papers in London, just constant day by day by day, just pounding on Liverpool's coach, Liverpool's players. So Jurgen Klopp stands up and says, stop the poison. So then Liverpool has this big showdown game with bitter rival Manchester United and buries them. 7 nothing. Could not believe the score. I thought it was a misprint. 7 nothing. We're not talking Liverpool playing a team about to get relegated out of the English Premier League. Yeah. If you're a bottom three team in the standings, you get booted out at the end mm-hmm. of the season, go to a lower division. We're talking Manchester United, and they killed them. Mo Salah, Liverpool's star, who's had an up-and-down season, had a couple of goals. So after the game, it's the other coach's chance to blow his lid. Eric uh, Ten Hag, Manchester United coach, he's under all kinds of fire because Man U is not what Man U used to be. They're having a bit of a struggle of a season despite being in third or fourth place in the table right now. He called his team a bunch of quitters after they lost 7 nothing. It's one of the highest paid teams in the English Premier League. And, and then he said, this is unacceptable, and if you're going to act this way, we may not have you on this team next season. He had a total meltdown, too. So, and the pressure points in the English Premier League are just they're phenomenal. And the coaches, they just keep getting fired. The turnover of head coaches 
have a bad season, John Riley. Too bad for you. <laughs> Out. Go get somebody else. And, and, and the changes, the coaches, and, and the number of players who've transferred in and transferred out in different teams, and the volume of money that's being spent on player acquisitions, absolutely stunning. So that was that was quite a day in the English Premier League. That was the second thing I went to as I was channel flipping. Well, isn't didn't Man, Man United um, sign uh, Cristiano Ronaldo? I mean, he's got to be one of their you know, highly paid guys, and they can't even score a goal. I well, mean, they got rid of him. Oh, okay, they bought him out. Okay, yeah, he's over in Saudi Arabia now. Oh wow, okay, yeah, they got rid of him during the World Cup. They said enough is enough is enough. Mm. So tough times in the English Premier League, but love watching the games. But wow, these coaches are really volatile. Next topic. Yeah, so we're going to talk a little IndyCar here. And this, to me, is incredible because, you know, we've been talking so much NASCAR. We've been dipping our toe in the F1 waters a bit. Um, but we don't really hear much about IndyCar until it's May. So it's interesting to see some news. Well, they started their season with the Grand Prix of St. Petersburg on the Sun Coast in Florida. And I've never seen anything like it. Uh, the wreckage, the carnage. Eleven cars were wrecked on Sunday's street course. And the scariest part, two cars were airborne. Wow. There were cars that rear-ended each other, stopped right in the middle of the track, and here came the rest of the field, and there's no place for those cars to go. And they're flying. And two cars in different incidents rear-ended a car, went airborne over two cars, hit another car, and then crashed, and the framework broke down. Have never seen that. Four drivers got hurt. There's hardly been any injuries in IndyCar racing in recent years because they've done such a phenomenal job with the cockpit and the structure of the cockpit. Two years ago, they decided to enclose the driver's cockpit with a big bar over his head, and it's fully enclosed. Yesterday, two cars that were airborne came down and clipped the top of the car that was at the front end of the oh, accident. Wow. Okay. If those bars had not been there, if that cockpit had not been enclosed, we would have had fatalities. One of the drivers uh, was taken to the hospital with internal injuries. Uh, but it, I mean, it was really scary. And I've never seen so many collisions, cars rubbing tires, and the minute you rub tires, you ricochet out, and guys running into tire walls. It was really, it, it, it was so far out of the norm of what IndyCar racing has become. And granted, street street courses are much different than running on a Indy 500 speedway. But they're going to have to evaluate why cars got airborne, because that's the one thing you don't want. You don't want cars airborne into catch fences. You don't want cars airborne going over fences into the crowd. It almost destroyed destroyed Formula One racing back in the day. Horrific accident at Le Mans in France. It killed like 24 people back in 1954. That was well before catch fences and high guardrails and all that. But uh, I've never seen anything like we did. And Marcus Erickson, the Indy 500 owner, was running in the middle of a pack and all this traffic. And then all these wrecks occurred. He wound up winning the thing right at the end when the first and second place guys leading the pack rubbed tires with three laps to go and shot themselves into the wall. Strangest weekend I've seen. Like, good headline there. Weekend of wreckage. Weekend of wreckage, yeah. And this was a Grand Prix that was a street race. And you got these open-wheel cars. I mean, it kind of reminds you of F1. Mm-hmm. I mean, what are the subtle differences between F1 and IndyCar? Horsepower. Unbelievable okay. horsepower in Formula One. I mean, 
what what they're cranking in F1 is very different than what they're cranking here. But street courses have kind of become a road courses and street courses is kind of the new thing in IndyCar racing. In fact, I think there's more street and road courses on the Indy schedule now than there are actual oval races. But Formula One is that that's obviously all road courses mm-hmm. and and street courses. Phenomenal expense, unbelievable speed and horsepower. Uh, to these vehicles and those those guys they sit in those things and those things fly so interesting so IndyCar was one topic but then we had another yeah we did I mean so we're going to go back here to F1 and you know we talked about Verstappen a number of months ago you know some of the records he was setting in F1 so what's the latest well he did it again they opened the season with the Grand Prix Bahrain and Max Verstappen won again ran away from the field, started on the pole and drove from the pole right to the podium. Nobody challenged him for Team Red Bull. His teammate, Sergio Perez, finished second. Uh, Lewis Hamilton, the legendary driver for Mercedes, who owned the sport up until last year when all the dynamics and construction of cars changed, Lewis Hamilton finished fifth. It's, It's one of the higher finishes he's had in well over a year. Team Mercedes has had all types of problems with their chassis and aerodynamics. But the, I think the burning question in Formula One right now is, is Red Bull has figured out all the new structures with the chassis, the tires, the horsepower, etc. And virtually all the other teams have not. Verstappen won 15 races last year, which is an all-time single-season record. And now he comes out of the gate and wins immediately a Bahrain. I think the burning question in Formula One is having one team dominate and own the sport. Is that really good? Because it's, it's Red Bull. It's not Ferrari. It's not Mercedes. It's not McLaren. It's not Williams. Past teams that had great success over decades in F1. This bears watching as to how they're going to control this, or is it just the reality that Team Red Bull has got brilliant management people, engineering people, mm-hmm. who have figured out how to run with the new rules and Mercedes, which had owned the sport for years under Lewis Hamilton, I think he's got had 99 career wins up until last year. They haven't been able to figure it out. How's that possible? Wow. I mean, it's, it's fascinating to learn about this. I know there's so much money involved with these F1 teams. Do they have any sort of like a salary cap or anything like that? They, they put one in about five years ago, uh, cost control. Um, it's, it's a big issue because the expenses were so out of control because the rich would go test all the time. And then they would, they would find out what worked, what didn't work. And they'd get it set up. So when it came to regular season, they owned it. Well, F1 and the the other manufacturers, the other smaller teams said, we can't compete. This is not right. So they've put a lid on cost controls and testing. But you don't put a lid on the intelligence as to what Team Red Bull has done, Mm -hmm. which to me is just absolutely amazing. So uh, F1 has exploded in terms of popularity. Here in the States, it's now got another foothold. Back in the day, they used to run three to four F1 uh, races here in America uh, and, and North America, and they kind of went away, and the cost cost issue became a big big issue. But now F one is back on the horizon. They got three races here in the United States. They're going into Las Vegas next year, which is going to be a big mega event. Um, it's going to be interesting to see if F1 supersedes IndyCar racing. Does F1, because of the dynamics of the drivers, they're all 
international personalities does F1 chase down NASCAR in terms of popularity? Although NASCAR's got 32 races on the calendar, F1's going to have three to four, maybe five here in the States and in Canada in the next couple of years. Yeah. I mean, this is exciting. I mean, for me as a you know a race fan back in the day, you know, as a kid, it was all about IndyCar. And then, you know, we've been learning a lot about NASCAR for the last couple of decades. But I can see a lot more of a surge of interest in F1. You know, we've got these Netflix specials. You know, my 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 wife and my son are both really focused on F1. So, you know, I think this is great for America. Looking forward to that race coming to Vegas. And then we got the other racing entity that I paid attention to right <laughs> at the end of the evening and couldn't believe how it finished. Yeah, I mean, just we got racing on all levels here. So let's let's talk about NASCAR. Las Vegas 400, the good old boys. They weren't good to each other right at the end of the race. It was really a lot of a lot of combat. Uh, at, at the end, William Byron, with two laps to go, chased down the leader and posted the victory. And I thought, boy, how unfair was this? At the end of the Cindy 500 race, the way this thing turned out to be a, a two-lap sprint after a whole pile of caution flags right at the end. Because it looked like, in all honesty, that that Kyle Larson was going to win, and he's a bright young driver who's had some really good stretches of time and then some bad luck. He had bad luck. He was running away from the field. Car in the back of the pack hit the wall, brought out the caution. So therefore, it bunches the whole field. So they have a what they call overtime two-lap race to the checkered flag in overtime. Everybody's bunched together, and William Byron slingshots his way on the first overtime lap and then gets around the leader and cruises to the victory. And me on the back of the pack, there's like an 11-car wreck because somebody got sideways on the final lap trying to trying to get to the corner. And uh, NASCAR does it really different than everybody else. There's an awful lot of carnage in NASCAR races. I thought, gee, how unfair was this race for the way this thing ended up? But uh, good old boys, they do swap paint. They do bang on bumpers. They mm-hmm. put, they tap you and they spin you out and hope they don't get taken out in the process. It just... Uh, what what's what's the the phrase I could use? There's not a lot of good conscience going on in the middle of the track at the end of the race. Yeah, well, it's interesting the dynamics because you were talking about the Grand Prix in St. Peter, uh, uh, St. Petersburg. Yeah, the one in Florida where the the open wheel cars when they bump, you say they yeah. ricochet. Yeah. Now with NASCAR, you don't really get that as much. But yeah, those cars are going what 200 miles an hour down the straightaways and they're just banging. Well, yeah, they, I, I think top speed for the most part in traffic is 160 to 180. But somebody gets sideways, there's nowhere to go. Mm. You know, because he's sideways going down the track, and here comes the rest of the packer, and they're all trying. They're trying to back up, trying to let off, and they're getting pushed from the guys behind them. And then you get you get chaos. The cars are flying everywhere. I know people like to see cars spinning. We've not NASCAR's done a tremendous job with downforce packages to keep the cars from getting air under them and flipping because mm-hmm. that that's a horrific thing. We've had a couple of incidents in maybe the last three years where guys have gotten upside down, but NASCAR has done a f- tremendous job in terms of what they've done with the roofs and, and, and the dams in the front that gets the air and, and does not allow the car to lift. Uh, we've not had a fatality in NASCAR since Dale Earnhardt died decades ago, and that that was from driver 
body reaction when his car hit the wall. That led to the soft walls, which give if a car hits a soft wall, although the driver still gets gets a jolt, but they've got the, the Hans devices now hooked to their helmets that strap them in so the fact they, they can't snap their neck, which is mm-hmm. how Dale Earnhardt died. So they've done a tremendous job in safety. But I've been on the pit wall at Fontana mm. Speedway. Uh, I was with Tony Stewart's team, and they let me hang on the pit wall as a reporter and wow. to see these guys do 160 to 180 in pack racing bumper to bumper, <laughs> knowing full well that the turbulence of the air is front car to back car. Yeah. It's just amazing. These guys have no fear. Now, they're, they're well protected. NASCAR's done a great job with the safety rules. But just to sit there and see the speed and to see the bold moves and then know if somebody gets out of, out of whack— it's going to cause a mess behind them. Mm-hmm. Tremendous sport. These guys have no fear. I mean, they're yeah, they're a different breed of guy, right? I mean, because they get off on that thrill seeking, and that's what makes the sport so exciting, and that's what makes a lot of these guys heroic in their own way. Um, you know, especially when you talk about the good old boys back in the day. But it seems like every year or two, we got a new breed of new new superstars that are coming forward, and then there's all these other categories of races, like the the pickup truck races, and you know, and then you know they start out with those those mini cars on the short track. So, I mean, this is a great sport. It's, it's so American, you know, the NASCAR. Um, I think it's terrific. But I just, I like the international blend with F1 coming here. And I would love to see a little more crossover, but I know that's difficult to do. Well, economics play a big part in scheduling. And IndyCar and NASCAR have come together in the last group of years and have actually jointly scheduled doubleheader races where they both raced at the same track on the same weekend. It's just, a, it's a party beyond parties. Nice. But listen, since there's no NFL on TV for you to watch, I just want you to take an hour and a half. I know you got Netflix, and you've seen every film that's ever been made. Have you ever seen Days of Thunder? Yes, I did. Okay, with Tom Cruise. Well, that's kind of a a short story of what NASCAR used to be. Yeah. It's pretty good. All right, those are topics on the table. See, I I went thumbing. I went channel flipping. I TV guided (laughs) myself, and I came up with all these unique things. Now, time for Fans Forum. Before we start, John, just very briefly, tell all of the people with us on our live stream and our our Monday bonus podcast how they can get involved with Fans Forum, how they can subscribe so they'll get all the alerts, and then I'll uh, add in what I do on the side. Okay, for sure. You you do work on the side, too? (laughs) I mean, geez, you're the busiest man in sports. Um, Hey, we're going to be doing the uh yeah fans forum we're going to get started we still have time if you want to get in you have a question you know for lee about auto racing or golf or the other topics we covered or you just want to talk padres you want to talk nba you want to talk aztec basketball just uh put those topics on the table type them in on the live stream on facebook or youtube we'll get them on the screen we'll get you involved we've already got a number of people here on the board already and then be sure to subscribe you know if you're on in the car long drive walking your dog you're listening to podcasts you can get hacksaws podcast wherever you get your podcast google apple stitcher spotify uh, be sure to subscribe there and subscribe on the youtube channel and make sure when you do give us a thumbs up because that helps us a great deal to know what the fans like and what the fans would like to see us add also go to my website it's all written leehacksawhamilton.com i write on it every day absolute ton of information we cover every topic on the table and of course we also write a one man's opinion column daily okay john you're 
your turn. Transform. Where do we start? Okay, here's a good one here. This is uh, from Mike O'Connor. He says, Saw, could the University of Georgia football team beat the best XFL team? Uh, it's been an argument. Some people have the opinion maybe Georgia and its heyday national championship team might be the worst team, beat the worst team in the NFL. But uh, Georgia's, Georgia's got something going there with Kirby Smart. It's absolutely amazing what he's turned Georgia Bulldog football into. The ability to recruit, the ability to get uh, transfers in, the, the, the obviously their NIL ability to, to finance player acquisitions. You know, they've, they've kind of supplanted Alabama. Alabama's not what Alabama was. Not to say Alabama won't be good again, but Georgia right now is really the focal point and, and the one that carries the flag in college football. Well, didn't the, didn't the NFL do that where there was a game between the college football champion and one of the NFL teams, or is my memory fuzzy on that? No, it's not fuzzy. It goes way back in the day. It's pretty good. Your good memory goes back <laughs> into the 60s and 70s. No, they used to have the college football all-star game. It was played in Chicago at Silver. Your field. Uh, initially, it started as a charity event, and they'd have an NFL team. I don't know if it was the NFL champion, but they would play the college football all-stars. And that, mm-hmm. that went on for a couple of decades, and it, it kind of filtered out because the injury factor started to become an issue. And, and college kids said, well, why would I play in an all-star game against an NFL team and risk, risk getting hurt? And NFL teams said, I don't want my number one draft pick playing against Green Bay Packers mm-hmm. in a meaningless exhibition game. So it it kind of went away. But no, you were, were correct. The college all-star game was in Chicago. And I think it, if memory serves me, it might have started in the 1950s and probably went to the mid-1970s. Were the, were the college teams competitive? I mean, did they... Well, it was a college all-star team. But still, I mean, were yeah. they able to be competitive? Yeah, they were, but it was a different time. Okay, a different time. All right, let's move on. Hey, we got some great YouTube comments here that have come in throughout the week. You know, we're posting these videos all throughout the week, and we get a lot of great feedback from the fans. Uh, this comment is from Andrew Williams. He says, excellent. Oh, this is talking about the how does he do it. This is the, your breakdown of how Peter Seidler is making the San Diego Padres a winner. And and uh, Andrew says, excellent analysis. As a heartbroken San Diego Charger fan who now refuses to follow pro football, I'd never considered that move has probably helped my undying love for my beloved Padres' current success. Tony never got his ring, but Manny and the boys just might bring one home, and I'm grateful for an owner that actually wants to win. Unlike the brokest billionaires, you'll hear of the like of the Spanos family. Again, great analysis. Well, there, there's a lot of hidden agendas as to how Peter Seidler is executing the finances of what he's doing. And the national media is paying no attention, has no knowledge as to what this market has become. And all, all we get is this, this critique and criticism of this is not sustainable. But according to Peter's blueprint, if they continue to win, they'll generate enough revenue and then contracts come up and they'll go use that money to go get different type of players. They think they can continue this. Only concern I have, and they don't want me to say it, but... The prices of Padre tickets have rocketed. I mean, they raised their prices 20% one year, 18% this past season. That's a 38% pay hike right now. And I'll guarantee you there'll probably be another pay hike going towards 2024. But it's his money. He's put it at the front. Creatively, he's done a really good job, a better job than any other small market owner. But this, as I said, this is a this is a very unique market because there is no competition in this market for the corporate advertising dollar. And that's a piece of this equation. It's different here than it might be in small market Pittsburgh, small market Baltimore, small market Kansas City, etc. Thanks for following and thanks for the input.
Okay, let's move on. Got another comment here. This is from Andrew Beast talking about the Dodgers roster turnover. He says, Dodger fan, but this is basically a reload while still having the number one farm system in baseball. Still going to make the playoffs, whether it's by wild card or winning the division. And it's a new group of scrappy uh, players who, who knows? I see them as the number one team to land Otani. Then going back all in again, they do this every few years. I think so, too. I do agree. Now, there's a difference between being a 111-win team, as they were last year with all those great veteran stars, and hoping maybe you could be a 100-win team. Or maybe the reality, gee, I hope we're not a 90-win team, which would mean a lot of the young kids haven't stepped to the forefront. So it's critical. You know, we, we John and I have talked on our podcast about the fact that they've got five young pitchers in Oklahoma City. And names to keep in mind, Ryan Pepio and Bobby Miller. I think those are the first two that they think are ready to jump to Dodger Stadium. Now, ready to jump is different than being given the ball every fifth day and going out and actually winning games and going 9-2. and two. Uh, The loss of Gavin Lux is a bit of a blow because that's a bat that's not there in the lineup, but they still have Vargas. Keep in mind, though, they don't have Justin Turner. They don't have Trey Turner. There is no Cody Bellinger there, and now Gavin Lux is gone. So that's out of your every eight everyday at-bats. That's four guys, four bats that are not there, and you haven't really replaced them. Now, they did replace them in terms of getting the J.D. Martinez's and the David Peralta's. So we have to see what those one-year rental veterans bring to the table. Did you did you see what um, happened to Justin Turner today? Hit in the face with a line drive, suffered a con- or by hit by a pitch in the face, suffered a concussion and tissue damage. That was scary. I mean, that was unbelievable. The, the fastball, high fastball and just tailed. I mean, it happened in a split second. And he leads in the pitches all the time. That's mm-hmm. who he is. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's still, he was taken to the hospital, was still hospitalized at mid-afternoon on Monday. And there'll probably be another update on Tuesday. Hopefully it's just, it's cuts. Hopefully he did not break a jaw or an orbital bone, which is a, a much deeper, more concerning injury. But he's got, you know, he's being examined for a concussion. So, I mean, he... He took one right in the face. Ooh, that's 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 tough. All right, let's move on down the list here. And this is talked by the Aztecs in that test in New Mexico. This is from Tom Richardson. He says, Dutcher is bad in the last minute of the first half and the last three minutes of the second half. When Fisher called a timeout in a critical situations, he had a set play and they usually scored. Also, the Aztecs cannot score inside the key unless it's a dunk. I've never seen a team miss so many layups. Well, it's a team that I still think is highly erratic, and that may be really unfair of me to say with a team that finished 24-6, and number one seed Mountain West Conference. You know, I thought of something really different this morning. You look at Brian Dutcher's career record at San Diego State in the 30-win seasons and all the years they won 24 or more games, they still don't get any national recognition or any national love. Here we are scrapping about, well, they can be a fifth seed, sixth seed, what's going to happen? And yet Gonzaga, which has a record almost the same as San Diego State over maybe the last five to eight years or Mark Fuser on, Gonzaga comes front of mind immediately to everybody. 
where San Diego State has done all these things within their conference and then beaten some of the big boys too, non-conference, they don't get any national recognition. I, I just don't understand it. Well, I think part of it is being in the Mountain West Conference. Now, granted, it, it's, this is an up here for the conference, but they were just saying on the CBS uh, Sports Network, you know, that post-game show, they're saying after Gonzaga, San Diego State is the best mid-market program in the nation. But still, it just seems like we never get the benefit of the doubt. Mm-hmm. You know, the minute they lose a game, they plummet in the rankings, and it takes so long for them to get up because they, the the, uh, the evaluators were always kind of look at it skeptically. You know, are the Aztecs really for real? They just need to win in March. And if they do, I think that's going to change their perception. And helping West Coast reality, UCLA ranked number two in the nation mm-hmm. in the polls that just came out going towards the Pac-12 tournament. So college basketball will be fun. We'll be talking March Magnus, uh, Madness on our, our, our podcast coming up at the end of the week. Okay, let's move along here. We've got another comment here. Uh, this is about uh, Manny Machado and back when he was playing in Baltimore. This is from Principal McGiver, uh, McVicker. And he says, uh, people were glad he was going to be gone. I think he's quoting you, Hacksaw, right here. And he says, that couldn't be further from the truth. Manny was and still is a fan favorite in Baltimore. Manny was our guy and nobody in Baltimore wanted to see him leave. When you have a pathetic ownership group refusing to spend money and completely disregarding the fan base, that's where the problem comes in. Item one, uh, Manny played when Manny wanted to play in Baltimore. That offended some people. Did he do well statistically? Surely did, because he's got great God-given talent, and the game is so easy for him. Item two, Angelo's family are terrible, and I concur with you on that. You know, their refusal to spend money to keep their star players or in free agency or develop them has been shameful. Now, Mike Elias, the general manager, has been there maybe four years, came from the Houston Astros, has finally set a foundation of a lot of good young players, but they're young. And they're in a division that's got Tampa, which historically has done well. It's got the Red Sox, and by the way, it's got the hated Yankees. A very tough division to be in. If And this all spins back to what John and I have talked about for a long period of time, Prince. The reality is Major League Baseball allows these small market owners to take revenue sharing money, put it in their pocket, and not reinvest it in the product. It's not fair to the hometown fans that have supported the great legacy of Oriole baseball, going back to Earl Weaver and Mm. Brooks Robinson and Boog Pal and Jim Palmer and Frank Robinson. But these owners, I I think, have not destroyed the market, but they've just damaged the market, the baseball market, because there should be good heritage there in Oriole baseball. But that's that's in the past. Manny Machado is now a different player. Uh, I've never heard him say, I regret saying I'm not Johnny Hustle. I'm, I never <laughs> heard him say, I regret the way it ended in Baltimore and I forced that trade and all that. But he's a different guy right now. Now he's, he's one of the wealthiest guys in the league, and he's a cornerstone guy to carry the flag for the Padres, and hopefully he'll hit 300 with 35 home runs in a gold glove season, and everybody around him will do well, too. Yeah, I mean, I, I also think about that legacy of the of the Orioles. And, you know, Mark Belanger, um, Doug DeSensei played there. I mean, there's just been so many great names that have gone through the, that program for that team. And then when when uh, Lucina was out there and they built Camden Yards, I just thought, man, you know, Baltimore is really stepping up, and they were playing the game you know, effectively in this, you know, to generate revenue. 
But where did it all go? I mean, why didn't, where weren't they able to parlay all of that excitement around their stadium into maybe a, a more highly paid roster? Rich owners just refused to write the check. Did not re, did not want to catch up to sign free agents, keep their own guys in-house, screwed up in terms of the farm system, and they, they went back into the tank again. But Michael Elias, I think, has done a good job, but he's got a very young team. And like I said, a very, very tough division. Hey, listen, we hope you enjoyed our bonus coverage and our podcast. Please, uh, when you watch it, give us a thumbs up. Tell your friends, email, text, write them a note. Tell them what we're doing. Our podcast bonus coverage on Monday, regular Hacksaw Headlines podcast on Thursday. And check my website, LeeHacksawHamilton.com. Come Thursday, we dive back into spring training baseball, coming out of the NFL draft combine. Here comes NFL free agency and all the other deals that are about to happen in pro football. And we'd love to hear from you about your favorite sport. Do you follow the PGA? Are you paying attention to the LIV? What's your reaction to what we just had to say about a wild weekend of IndyCar racing? John, good to talk to you. We'll see you come Thursday. So we'll see you then, and I'm, I'm going to be focused on March Madness. we got the <laughs> conference tournaments coming up. It's going to be great. Hey, thanks for being with us on Hacksaw's Headlines. Join us again for Hacksaw's Headlines on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. And find the audio version on your favorite podcast app. Touchdown, San Diego! For more content, go to LeeHacksawHamilton.com.